There are generations of memories packed into every block on the south side of Billings. One only has to take a quick walk around the neighborhood to get a sense of all the history that resides here. My name is Joe Stockberger. This podcast is meant to be used in conjunction with a set of two maps that will guide you on the journey. On the History and Institutions map, we start on the corner of 2nd Avenue South and South 37th Street. So come along with me as we walk through the bright side of the tracks in Billings, Montana. As you start the route, you'll notice the large metal structures to the north. These cylinders have been used for storing grain for more than 100 years. The red brick building next to them is where the current factory owner refines, sorts, and shucks that grain into flour. The factory produces a half a million pounds of flour a day. Graincraft is the fifth owner since the factory was established in 1909 as part of the first wave of large-scale processing. Graincraft plant manager Jeff Shantz says the factory was part of the expansion west as cities like Billings grew and flourished. At the time, all cities had a flour mill. It was all local, right? You, you bring your flour or your grain to the local mill, they make flour for you and you take it home for whatever. So this was kind of that era where they were starting to expand out and be more industrial in terms of selling to a lot of people. He says before the 20th century, people would bring their grain to be processed in small batches. He says the transition is thanks to the invention of a type of grain processor called a roller mill in the 19th century. That's a game changer because you could do a lot more flour milling with, you know, the same amount of people, the same amount of energy. Shantz says the roller mills are still the machine of choice. Past the factory's newer space with offices and coffee cups is five floors of a time-tested process. Machinery strips the grains of their bran and germs and sorts them according to type. Shantz says a lot of these machines are from the 1930s, 50s, and 70s. But they built them right. You don't, you don't have to worry about it. They work. Tubes draw the grain up from the basement to the fifth floor and then distribute it down to big shaking sifters, which separate the grain according to size. And then those particle sizes go to various other pieces of equipment to get either reduced further, cleaned from bran, or just goes to flour feed. Back on the ground floor, I follow Shantz across a bridge over out-of-use train tracks into another building, where machines package the flour into paper sacks and then fold and seal their tops. The factory also processes whole wheat flour, but Shantz says the company primarily produces high-protein flour. That's forever what holds your dough, makes it strong. Like a bagel is a high-protein flour, it always has been. He says the company gets most of these grains, like spring wheat from eastern Montana, and transports it west via truck. Although this factory is on the train tracks, it no longer uses them for transportation as was done more than 100 years ago when the factory was built. The neighborhood in many ways is more car-centric than it was at the turn of the 20th century. At number two on your map, it's well worth it to go out of your way and grab a burger at the King's Hat Drive-In to enjoy on the rest of your journey. King's Hat has been a Southside staple for decades and still draws a line of cars at lunch hour. Some of the same Southside residents who grew up eating here still grab their dinner at King's Hat to this day. That includes Violet Cober. Used to come get my ice cream cones from here. She says now her favorite item is the chicken strips. But for my boys, uh, they like the flying burgers. That's what they're known for. Inside, a worker creates the flying burger. He places two pieces of sandwich bread into a press and closes them around a patty, cheese, and other burger fixings. It looks like a bready flying saucer. 
Next to the flying burger press in this trailer is a griddle full of sizzling onions and rows of burgers with bacon and melted yellow cheese. And next to that, a large vat of hot oil turns baskets of tater tots crispy and delicious. The workers wrap the burgers in paper, drop the goods into a bag, and hand them through a window to the customer. A similar process has been happening inside this building for about 70 years. Most of the menu items are the same. Vicki Hodson co-owns King's Hat with her husband Jim. Hodson says they're the fourth family to own the business, which was established in 1949. We bought it 10 years ago. We own property across the street. So we could just kind of watch the business. We got to know the old owners. And when they decided to sell, my husband said it was a great opportunity for us. Hodson says they're the fourth family to own the business, which was established in 1949. There were several locations, but this was the one that they called the King's Hat starting in the 1970s. The third owner changed the name. It was actually a big boy restaurant when it first opened. Everyone helps out. Hodson tonight is in charge of cutting the potatoes into wedges using a large machine. She avoids performing this noisy task whenever a worker at the mic takes customers' orders. Large onion ring, large dark pepper, and a large lemonade. Boom. Okay, we'll see up at the window. Thank you. Hodson says during the summer, King's Hat is busy all day, every day. It's a lot of work, a lot of hours, but it's a lot of fun too. Hodson is one of the business owners who makes the South Side a living and breathing community. We'd like to introduce you to another local community member who holds some of the institutional knowledge of the South Side history. At point three, we'll talk about the railroad crossing at South 27th Street with Western Heritage Center Executive Director and local historian, Kevin Koistra. The railroad tracks is where the South Side begins, according to Koistra. It's very difficult to talk about the history of Billings without understanding what I call the tale of two cities. Koistra says Billings was established in 1882 and was directly connected to the railroad. The standard design for the Northern Pacific Railway in the 1870s and into the early 1880s was to uh, put a railroad track through the middle of your downtown. So you had to make a couple decisions right away. What side of the town was going to be like more civic oriented? And once you decide what side of the tracks you're going to put the railroad depot on, you favor that side of the town. North of the tracks is the downtown area with its bars, restaurants, and coffee shops. Koistra says the direction of the wind also exerted a large influence because the summer winds typically move from west to east. That means any noxious smells also move west to east. The downwind area would be the southeast part of town. And so the south side, in some ways, becomes dedicated to the industrial part of our development. You know, oil and gas in the 1920s, um, the sugar beet industry in 1906, the stockyards, on and on. Industry development and the related need for workers drew ethnic groups. So when the sugar factory needed people to work in the sugar factory and in the fields, uh, the Mexican population was the most inviting population to recruit. Koister says the sugar beet factory hired Germans from Russia in the early 1900s. Then the 1924 Naturalization Act limited immigration from outside of North America. And so, the South Side grew bit by bit, and with it came a diversity of churches, businesses, and schools. Other cities that sprung up around the railroad in Montana swelled and shrunk while Billings flourished. 
Today, the railroad carries large manufactured products like coal mined in southeast Montana, along with grain and intermodal freight, which are the large container boxes you'll see on trains today. At the corner of South 34th and 2nd Avenue, you'll be at number 4 on your History and Institutions map, which is the Little Flower School. This building was an elementary school when it opened around 1950. Southside resident Ann Heffeniter was a student here in the late 1960s. Fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. She says it's much the same as she remembers, from the ticking of the clocks to the tiles on the floor. They never turned the lights on. There are two upper floors with a gym in the basement, a chapel on the first floor, and classrooms on the second floor. Heffeniter looks inside what had been her fifth grade classroom. So we, we all faced this way. Would have been blackboards on that wall and then blackboard on the side wall. She says if students finished their work early, they could page through one of the encyclopedias the teacher kept there. I read about everything. Arabian horses or some exotic plant that grew on the island of Guam. She recalls language arts, science, math, and religion classes. Being this is a Catholic school, we had a religion class every day. Little Flower ran into financial troubles and, in 1986, joined forces with parish schools at Holy Rosary. St. Pius, and St. Patrick's. Together with Billings Central Catholic High School, they formed a new district, Billings Catholic Schools. The building was used as administrative offices for a while and is now a Catholic after-school program. As a child at the original Little Flower School, Heffeniter attended church down the block at what was formerly St. Teresa's Little Flower Church, now Mary Queen of Peace. I was baptized here. Churches like these served a community role and still do. Anne leads the way downstairs to the basement, which features a big kitchen and several separate rooms. I taught religious ed many years ago, like kindergartners. The church and education in this neighborhood were highly connected, overlapping with the community and its daily life, not only on Sundays, but every day. On the corner of 2nd Avenue South and South 33rd Street sits Garfield School, named after the 20th president of the United States, James A. Garfield. The version you see today was built over a 28-year period from 1920 to 1948 and encompasses an entire city block on Billings' south side. For 100 years, the school served kindergarten through 8th grade children until School District 2 voted to close the school in 2001. Tara Beth Yoakums was a paraprofessional reading teacher for the Title I program at Garfield School. Title I is federal funds to provide monies for kids who need reading and math interventions. So I taught at Garfield from 2000, or 1991 until 2001 when they closed it, and then I was transferred to uh, senior high. Tara Beth remembers the details that made Garfield School unique. The building itself was amazing, that all these uh, busts and these frescoes and all these different types of things on the walls, and it had lockers. My mom actually went there as a junior high school person. So that's how old it was. The late 19th and 20th century simple neoclassical revival Garfield School you see today was designed and built in three phases, 1920, 1934, and 1948 by local architect Chandler C. Cohagen. What is neoclassism, you ask? Well, according to the neoclassism description from the National Register of Historic Places Registration Form, 
In its purest form, it is a style principally derived from the architecture of classical Greece. Buildings designed in this style feature broad expanses of plain wall surface, pedimented porticos, and roofs that exhibit relatively unadorned lines, all characteristics found at the Garfield School. Elevations are typically one to two and a half stories, symmetrical, and feature decorative surrounds on doorways including pediments, side lights, and transoms. The red brick building with a daylight basement and terracotta ornamentation at its peak in 1950 served nearly 900 students. To say that the people in the neighborhood were shocked that the school was to be closed would be an apt statement. There was never an option of not having a Garfield school. Never. There was not, that was never an option that School District 2 said. On July 19, 1999, the school district trustees approved a resolution that ultimately led to the closure of Garfield School. We can spend a lot of time on the pros and cons of the shuttering of the school, but that's ultimately not the purpose of this walking tour podcast. We hope this is a marker of what the school meant to the people of the South Side, how important it was for the residents to have an accessible neighborhood school in which to send their kids to get a quality education in the city, while at the same time fostering community and neighborhood pride. A lot was taken from the residents when it was closed, and many bitter feelings still remain. Yoakum's sums it up pretty well. We had, you know, Friendship House. We, you know, there's so many resources and that never went away. That was always, that was another reason why it was such um, an honor to work at Garfield, to, to work there because so many resources, so many resources at our fingertips and people always giving, always giving. At number six on the map, we discuss some of the South Side's churches which are dotted across the neighborhood. Many of those churches sprung up from the centers of the Hispanic, African-American, Chinese, and German communities on the South Side. One of the first churches in the neighborhood was the African Methodist Episcopal Church, also called Wayman Chapel, built sometime around the turn of the century. The church went through multiple pastors before Reverend Robert Freeman took leadership in 1957. He served as pastor there for nearly 50 years. The spired wooden church on the corner of 4th Avenue South and South 25th Street held both weekly services and community events. A Southside resident in the 1920s would have turned a page on the Billings Gazette and seen an advert inviting them to a picnic barbecue and chicken dinner. The chapel also hosted African-American conferences and groups, like the Billings chapter of the Montana State Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, called the Phyllis Wheatley Club. The statewide organization supported education, family, and advocated for improving black lives and communities across the state from the 1920s through the 1970s. Its motto was lifting as we climb. Wayman Chapel closed in 2013, but the building remains at 402 South 25th Street in Billings. Many of the other neighborhoods of ethnic minorities formed their own churches. Members of the Chinese community can attend Joss House, named after Joss or incense sticks burned during worship. The German immigrant community had several churches to choose from and could attend services in German at the Pilgrim Congregational Church, built in 1914 and upgraded to a brick building in 1936. Many of the churches came and went, and the same goes for neighborhood businesses. Stop 7 on the map is 307 South 34th Street that some in the neighborhood used to call Mary's Grocery Store. 
but was more widely known as 34th Street Grocery. One of the residents who remembers the store is Tim Ennis. The one on 34th Street was the 34th Street Grocery. People were real creative in the names. (laughs) But uh, we always called it Mary's. And it was a couple, an older couple that owned it. The version of the store that Mr. Ennis frequented as a kid on the south side was owned at that time by John C. and Betty Reiner. And according to a July 21, 1948 Billings Gazette ad, quote, promise you prices that will compare favorably with any carried by the larger stores and in addition will be open Sundays, evenings, and holidays for your convenience. Our hours will be 7.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day of the week, unquote. They carried the usual grocery store items, so they had, you know, all of your staples of canned goods and fresh bread, and they had a deli case that you could get sliced lunch meats and such, and a couple of things I do remember about it. They, they had penny candy for kids, so that was always one of the places that you could spend an hour of their time seemed like picking out something that suited you and they (laughs) didn't make much money on it malted milk bowls were two for a penny (laughs) they had gum and and such but one thing I do remember was that uh, Mary's husband was missing an arm at the shoulder and he worked the meat case and if you had if you needed lunch meat sliced, he'd manage to pull out the... Because lunch meat came in big blocks. It wasn't pre-sliced. And the, so bologna or whatever it was was sliced or thin or thick, whatever you wanted, and then it was wrapped in butcher paper. And he managed to, with one arm, be able to wrap up. It was fascinating to me that <laughs> how he could manage to do that. Of the 70-plus grocery stores that were in Billings in 1940, 20 of them were on the Billings South Side. These were the mom-and-pop style of stores, not the big-box version that are so ubiquitous today. Again, it was, you know, it was for if you just needed something. They didn't shop there constantly because they major grocery shopping was probably done at Rainier's. But... uh, not unlike a convenience store today for the, the grocery store, but didn't hesitate to buy lunch meat there or, or bread for making sandwiches or soup or, you know, if it wasn't a whole lot of groceries needed, it, that's where I'd get sent to the grocery store to pick that stuff up. Clarence Saunders opened his first Piggly Wiggly on September 6, 1916 in Memphis, Tennessee. His store shifted the model of traditional grocery shopping from handing a list to the shopkeeper and having them collect your groceries to allowing the shoppers to roam the aisles and pick out the groceries for themselves. This is the style that is commonplace across the United States for around 100 years now. But Safeways, when they moved into town, it probably spelled the doom for the corner grocery store. The supermarkets themselves didn't, but it was the big chain movements that promised lower lower prices that seemed to kill the, those 
the corner, the entrepreneurship in the corner grocery stores. By that time, I was in high school, I think. Little corner stores like Mary's had a death by a thousand cuts, really. From suburban flight, to clever marketing schemes put on by the bigger box chains, to world wars depleting their workforce, to shifting consumer habits, it was tough for the smaller stores to compete. But if you look close enough around the south side, you'll see the remnants of a lot of these stores spread throughout the neighborhood even today. Stop 8 on the map midway up South 35th are two very unique homes that were once owned by brothers well-known in the Billings community, Peter and Christian Yagen. Peter resided at 209 and Christian at 208. The two brothers immigrated from Switzerland and followed the Northern Pacific Railway west, ultimately landing in Billings just about the time it was incorporated as a city in 1882. As Charlie Yagen, great-grandchild of Peter Yagen, remembers. The Yagens were from Closters. Closters, Switzerland is where they came from. And his, my great-grandmother was from Newfoundland, which is right on, on the Swiss side of uh, Italy, right where the, now the San Bernardino, San Bernardino Tunnel goes through. Okay. That's, that's where she was, at the headwaters of the Rhine. The brothers made a name for themselves, starting out with a mobile bakery. They built a, um, an oven, and then at that oven, then they built a building over the oven, and then they baked bread and baked goods yeah. and sold it. And they had a regular route that they ran around town. And then, of course, when the railroad came through, which was nearly the same time, they sold a lot to the candy dancers and, and then eventually to the passengers on the Northern Pacific. Okay. And uh, then they went into the general mercantile business, which was at first called Peter Yagen and Company, or P. Yagen and Company, and then, and then it eventually became Yagen Brothers. They set up a mercantile business on Minnesota Avenue, where the Montana Rescue Mission is today. Had an electrical and plumbing business, as well as the first electricity generating plant for the city. The brothers also had a string of banks spread out all over the state, in Butte, Billings and Gardner, and just to top it off, had a working cattle and sheep ranch up towards Sumatra, Montana. So they were they were pretty entrepreneurial. They also spread north and east, up into that Sumatra area, and they raised a lot of, of uh, livestock too, uh, primarily sheep at that time, which is primarily what this country was all about. It was sheep production. There weren't that many cattle around at that time. In 1904, Christian built his home at 208 South 35th Street. As you walk up to the two-and-a-half-story Victorian-style house, a set of stairs leads you to a tiled front porch area with a pressed tin ceiling and stone ionic columns supporting the roof above. The entry foyer is wainscoted with wallpaper and hand-tooled leather. The home contained 24 rooms in all and six fireplaces throughout the house, each one adorned in its own unique French tile and oak mantles. Christian was, like I said, was quite a bit more aggressive than Peter. And, uh, you know, he was a county commissioner in, in the early days and all that sort of thing. And Granddad Peter, he that wasn't his deal. He was, um, like I say, more staid. And uh, um, Christian was very, 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 very uh, optimistic about the, the growth of Billings. The house was sold in 1936 to R.C. Tarrant. Then, in 1950, George A. Russell bought the house, and in 1951 sold it to Mr. Roy Cornelius, 
who operated a nursing home out of the home until 1972 when Mr. and Mrs. James L. Hader purchased it and renovated it. Christian Yagen was also one of Billings's first mayors, served in the Montana House of Representatives, and was also in the Senate. Christian also donated the land for the Great Western Sugar Factory, which is still in operation to this day. At 209 South 35th Street sits the house that Peter had built for his family in 1911, around 30 years after arriving in Billings. The three-story Colonial Revival home was built by Waldo W. Ames with prominent Billings architects J.G. Link and C.S. Hare. Past the 40-foot-wide vestibule and through the front door with the beveled leaded glass transom overhead, which was imported from Yugoslavia, you'll find seven different types of trim wood throughout the house. Lemon wood in the dining room, mahogany used in the reception room staircase, red and white oak, birch, walnut, and maple spread throughout the house as well. Being a colonial revival house, Peter's house was much more open as opposed to Christian's house, which was more compartmentalized. Christian's house was way fancier. You know, it had way more gingerbread and fancy trim and finish and so on and so forth. The Peter Yagen house was, was pretty austere. I mean, nice, but big open rooms. Christian's house, was all, the rooms were a lot smaller, more Victorian type. Mm -hmm. And um, um, the Peter's house was kind of big and airy and open. And the Christian house was a little more dark because it had so many more interior walls. And, uh, uh, but it's lovely. I mean, it, re it truly is a lovely house. The house consisted of a large ballroom in the basement with the laundry and mechanical room being located there as well. Peter Yagen's name is still stamped into the concrete on the front walkway to the house. The house was sold in the late 1930s to the Catholic Church Eastern Diocese and used as a boarding house for the nuns at the Little Flower Church. The diocese sold the house in 2016. Both of these homes are on the National Register of Historic Places. At stop nine on the map, we'll talk about the way the South Side's history contributed to the diversity that it experienced in the past and still extends to modern day. The South Side is celebrated as Billings's most diverse neighborhood. That's partially because the South Side formed around local workers who settled there. Factory work, in addition to jobs at salons, restaurants, hotels, and other South Side businesses, drew a diverse number of residents into the neighborhood. The size of those populations swelled and abated depending on the opportunities and options open to them. Some of the Germans from Russia, who were persecuted and ousted from their home country in the late 19th century, moved to the south side to work for the sugar bee factory in the early 1900s. Many of those same individuals lost their jobs due to anti-German sentiment during World War I. After that time, the sugar bee factory hired more Mexican employees. The Hispanic workers who traveled for employment at the sugar bee factory formed their own community on the south side, which came to be known as La Colonia. The South Side saw a growth in the African-American community in the first part of the 20th century. A variety of professionals came along with it, from engineers and carpenters to religious leaders. One Billings pioneer was the industrious Walker Browning. 
who was at different times a cook, a miner, and a barbershop porter. Browning first arrived in Billings to seek his fortune in the early 1880s, a time when the South Side was little more than a campsite. He soon saved enough money to move his wife and children to Montana and settle down for the long haul. His home on South 26th Street was perhaps one of the first buildings in the area. Riverstone Health rented the building to house medical students for years until one fell through the floor. The structure was determined to be structurally unsound and bulldozed in 2019, 2019. But Browning's legacy continues. He became a well-known civic-minded member of the Billings community. He, at different times, served as a juror and a delegate for the Republican primaries. The South Side's African-American community flourished for the first half of the 20th century. However, many people left due to the depression, drought, and more job opportunities on the West Coast. At stop 10, you'll see Highland Park with its jungle gym, swing set, and colorful sprinklers for summer play. The trees may be bigger and the playground newer, but Highland Park was part of the first wave of green spaces that city planners installed at the beginning of the 20th century. Local historian Kevin Koistra says the establishment of areas like Highland Park followed a tripling in Billings's population between 1900 and 1910. And in the course of that, uh, the Billings Parks Board had to be established by state precedent. And uh, Highland Park was part of what's called the Highland Addition. As this area began to grow after the sugar factory was built in 1906-1907, this area began filling up with residential properties. He says the traffic manager for the Northern Pacific Railroad, J.G. Woodworth, owned the block and sold it to the city of Billings in 1914. So then we had an organized group that was basically looking at parks and recognizing this quick and rapid growth of the city and began really aggressively working at establishing, beautifying the city, uh, recognizing that you know, a city with sewers is great, a city with, you know, a sidewalks is great, but a city without beautiful parks isn't really a great city. Coistra says Billings hired Charles Ramsdale out of Minneapolis in 1912 as a landscape architect. Minneapolis was at the forefront for parks development in an urban setting. So getting Ramsdale to help with our planning was a big coup. Ramsdale plotted out the direction of Billings Parks from Highland to South Park. You can hear about South Park on episode two of this two-part podcast touring you through the historic Southside neighborhood. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. My name is Joe Stockberger, and I produce this podcast along with Kayla DeRoche. The Southside Stories Project is a partnership between the Healthy by Design Coalition and the Western Heritage Center, made possible through a grant from the Kresge Foundation.